Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Well, I think you're going to have so much fun listening to this next guest here, Greg McEwen. And he is explaining the idea of essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less but better. And this conversation was so packed with the essentials that I wish we could have gone on longer and longer because there's just so much good stuff. So you're going to learn, one, the meaning of essentialism and why to eliminate non-essentials. Two, how to use extreme criteria to determine priority. And three, the power and importance of having some buffer time. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the things mentioned here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep38. Here's a bit about Greg. Originally from London, England, Greg McEwen is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and the founder of This, Inc., a company with a mission to inspire millions of people to design their essential mission in life. Their clients include Adobe, Apple, Airbnb, Cisco, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce.com, Symantec, Twitter, VMware, and Yahoo. Here's Greg. Greg, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be with you, Pete. Oh, boy. Well, I've been really getting a kick out of perusing your website and your book, and I've got some friends who are a huge fan of you. So maybe we can just jump right in because I think we'll run out of time before before we've got all the goods. So that's a good problem to have. <laughs> Could you share with us, how would you define essentialism? You know, sort of the, the less but better. In your words, how would you frame or define or, or set up this conversation? You have to begin not with essentialism, but with the enemy, with the problem, with the disease. And okay. The disease is, is non-essentialism. That is this, this idea that we can have everything we want in life if we can just fit everything in. Uh, if we can just shove it all in, if we can do more, if we can do enough, uh, if we can do it all efficiently enough and and shove it together that somehow this will be the equation for the success and significance that we desire to have. And, mm. and, and the problem is, is that it doesn't do what it says it will. It doesn't answer on the promise of on the packaging, uh, what it actually produces and see if, if you or those listening can relate to it. It leads to feeling busy, but not productive. It leads to feeling stretched too thin at work and or at home. It leads to feeling like your life gets hijacked by other people's agenda via email or some other way. It leads to saying yes to please or to avoid trouble. Mm -hmm. So it produces something completely different than it promises. Uh, people plateau in their progress as they make a, million, a millimeter progress in a million different directions. The antidote to that problem is essentialism or the disciplined pursuit of less but better. There's really three parts to essentialism, to, you know, to, to becoming an essentialist, is to create space to figure out what's essential. That's number one. Number two, to eliminate the non-essential as gracefully as possible. And number three, to create a system or routine to make execution of what matters most as easy as possible. Okay. Well, I'm convinced. I've, I've experienced the disease. It, it kind of, it comes and it goes in terms of like a, a bout of it. And then there's a respite and then it seems to come right back. So I would love to, to chat through maybe those three perspectives right here, right now. How should we get started? I think that 
a really practical way to begin is to make a list of every day of the six things that you think are most important, mm-hmm. the most essential things. Maybe rule of thumb might be three personal, three professional. Okay. And you prioritize that list and then you cross off the bottom five. <laughs> Take that top <laughs> item. Oh, that's Focus good. That's good. That. <laughs> that's the priority for the day. And here's, here's the thing, you see. So the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s and it was singular. What right. did it mean? The, the prior thing, the very first thing. Mm-hmm. And it stayed singular for 500 years, which means that nobody in the English-speaking world thought to even thought to pluralize that term for half a millennium, which speaks to an oddity that then took place, I believe, in response to the Industrial Revolution, where all of a sudden everybody is is thinking that the answer, because of manufacturing processes that were now taking off, they thought the answer to every problem is to is increase efficiency. It's to be always on all the time. That that's mm. what will lead to, to greater productivity. Now, it's it's there's a lot of truth to that in the factory system, but uh, it's not so great in the human system. And this is where I think non-essentialism came in. I mean, can you have can you have priorities? Can, I mean, can oh. you have very can you have very very many very first. Before all other things, things. No, I've I've seen that on my calendar before. It it doesn't work so well. It doesn't work so well because it's not it's not by definition possible. So what we need to do, we need to get this list. I only half jokingly suggest the crossing off the bottom five. You take that first item. That's the priority. That's the most valuable thing you've thought. If you've done it thoughtfully, you're really working on the right thing. And then you move on to the next item, and that becomes your priority after you've either completed or done all you can on the first item. So that at any given moment, you're trying to come back to what is essential. You, you get pulled off track, of course, but you come back to the essential. I think this list of six and prioritizing it on a daily basis is a very simple, very practical step that won't feel life-changing when you hear me saying it right now. But you do it, and it already will have an impact in one day. But here's where the real magic is. You keep doing it. The cumulative effect over the long run is immense. Mm. And so I think in general we overestimate what we can complete in a day, but we underestimate what we can complete in a decade. And it's this daily habit that gets us off on the right track towards what I'm describing. Oh, I love it. And, and so could you share a little bit in terms of, you know, what are the ideal practices or approaches for arriving at and determining that this is the priority? And you, you talk a little bit in the book about kind of making your criteria more stringent, like from a, you use an example associated with cleaning out the closet, like what items stay versus what items go. Can, can you share a little bit of that perspective and and how to feel great about your choice. Like, yes, in fact, that thing I said is the priority is indeed truly the priority. I got it right. So the the closet metaphor shows both the enemy and the, the, the disease and the antidote. So you mm-hmm. think about your closet on an average day. For most people, it, it gets more and more cluttered over time. You can end up with quite a lot of stuff in there, but you can't find anything. Right. This is the undisciplined pursuit of more. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, the alternative, why does it have, you know, you go in there 
And finally, you have had enough. The clutter's too much. It's all too much. The noise in here, the mess. And you take an item off the shelf as if to give it away. You evaluate it. But in that moment, something mysterious seems to happen hmm. as you hold that item up. And you think, well, you know, I, it might come back into fashion again. Oh. You know, it might fit me again. Could I possibly find this useful sometime again in the future? And that's the world's broadest criteria. The answer is, of course, yes to that. Of course, you might possibly. So the alternative is to, you know, if you really want to not just clear out your closet, but to be left with only the things that are great, you have to use different criteria. You have to ask questions like, do I love it? Do I wear it often? Do I look great in it? Well, those are more criteria. You know, suddenly, there's a lot fewer a lot fewer clothes that meet all of those criteria. But then what if you went even further than that? Uh, Marie Kondo suggests the question, does it spark joy? Oh, yeah. Uh, you are, hold up the item, does it spark joy? Well, the answer to that question of most, most things is no, it doesn't. So pass it along. Get rid of it. Move it on. And then you – that what, what's so magical about that question is that you're left with only things that do spark joy. And if you're only left with things that spark joy – then you find yourself actually, in a sense, having less, but it's better. You have uh, a lot less in the closet, but it's, it's just those things that are great. And we're not really talking about closets, of course, although it is literally true there. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the closet of our lives in which we have the added challenge of people stuffing things into our closet all day long. And, but the same problem exists if we have too broad a criteria. If the criteria is... I will do anything that is could remotely be good for anyone at any time in the future who asks or I otherwise think about, then we're going to be overloaded. Yeah. We're going to have so many far, far too many. Not like – I don't mean like we'll end up with a bit too much. Mm -hmm. Like if I had two more hours a day, then I could do everything that's expected and everything that's, that's coming my way. It, no, it's, it's total time bankruptcy. Somebody said to me recently, they said that when they were reading Essentialism, they realized they had a problem because they estimated inside that if they had 300 hours a day, they would still not have enough time oh, wow. to get everything done. That's the level that I think a lot of people have got to. A lot of very well-intended, driven, capable, curious people. By the way, that is what I mean by a non-essentialist. A non-essentialist is, is certainly not stupid, right. certainly not unthinking. They're driven and they want to be successful and they just believe that the way to success is to do it all. That's just what they've been, somehow that's been taught. That's been, they've picked that up in the air. They've picked it up in school where they had to do, be a straight A student at everything. They had to be in many extracurricular activities that you have to do everything. If you want to go to one of the best universities, you have to do every kind of sport and every kind of, they've been taught this. Maybe they picked it up from the magazines that say endlessly show the idea that you can that the way to to have it all is to do it all. Uh, that you you have to be able to make this special kind of cake and be on this special kind of diet, and it's on the same magazine cover on the same edition. They're just being told it's all of it. All non-essentialism says is that you just have to do everything perfectly now. That's all it's saying. I can feel the stress with that sentence right away. And, and so I love that distinction. It's like, does it spark joy is the real question, not does this produce any benefit whatsoever? If you only ask the question, could this possibly, not even does it produce benefit, could it possibly <laughs> produce benefit? 
The answer is always yes. You always say yes to way too many things. And, and, and you, can do, you can do that. You can be a non-essentialist with the purest of motives. It's not a motive problem. I assume great motives of all non-essentialists. But I also want to preserve the idea that being an essentialist doesn't mean you have bad motives, that you don't have to suddenly become an unfriendly or unhelpful or, or self-centered person. That's not essentialism. I don't even know what you call that book. Maybe that's books called Noism. <laughs> I didn't write a book called Noism or Selfishism. It's essentialism. It's what is really important. So I think that an essentialist has the highest motives. They're saying, I want to make a contribution. I don't just want to make any contribution. I want to make the highest possible contribution in my life. I don't just want to be helpful. I want to be the most helpful I can possibly be. That means I must become selective. It must mean it must apply extreme criteria over time if I want to continue to expand my sphere of influence for good. Understood. And so when you say extreme criteria, one of them, does it spark joy? It, it's extreme because few things do. Can you give us some examples of what are some other real just powerful questions that fit into that extreme criteria category? I think that we can ask things like, is this something I can be I – mean, Jim Collins suggested a couple of questions for, mm. for organizations that we can ask personally. His, his questions were, can I be the best in the world at this? Not do I want to be. Not would it be cool if I could. Can I be the best in the world at this? That was one. Another that he suggests is, uh, am I truly passionate about this? A third he suggests is, does it drive my economic engine? Mm-hmm. He's suggesting those three together. I think that's true for organizations, as he suggests, but I think it's also true for individuals. To those questions, we can also ask, is this, this the very best use of me? We can ask the question, you know, if I only had X amount of time left to live, would I be doing this? If I had a year left to live, would I be still invested in this? If I had a month left to live, would I still be invested a week, a day? And that starts to help force us into at least categorizing activities. It doesn't mean we say no to everything, but we ought to start being increasing our dis- discernment between mm-hmm. lots of good things. We've got to, it's like we've got to force clarity to come out by continuing, by putting pressure on it. No, wait, no, no, no. They're not equally important. Which let the true priorities stand up, and we have to increase that. The time that we invest the time, we invest the energy. We keep coming back to the questions, so that we can increase our discernment and our sense of even our sense of taste, our sense of like which thing here is the thing that matters. Eventually, it will reveal itself. Eventually, and then once it does, it's sometimes it's some sometimes it's ridiculous. Sometimes the right answer is so much more valuable than the second item that it, it, it parallels what I would call a – well, not what I would call, what has been called a power law. A power law says that things on a, on a given list of distribution will be massively unequal. For example, the richest person in the world will tend to be twice as rich as the second richest. Mm-hmm. will tend to be twice as rich as the third richest. That's not like a – the way we would normally think about the world. Non-essentialism is teaching us an opposite lesson. It's saying everything's important. You have to do it all. You have to want it all. And now, and so your job, it's like you're shoveling coal. I just got to get more of this out. That's the way to be successful. The essentialists believe that almost everything is noise, that a very few things are superbly valuable. It's like 
years of being in a coal mine, thinking you're in a coal mine, waking up to the idea, oh, I'm actually in, I'm actually in a, in a diamond mine this whole time. Here I'm shoveling stuff out, but I'm really supposed to have been looking for the diamonds. This is the perspective of the essentialist. The essentialist says it's difficult to overstate the unimportance of practically everything. Yeah, you're looking for the looking for the few, the vital few over the trivial many. Well, I'm a big uh, Pareto fan myself, and so and so now I want to think a little bit about that that prioritization within a, a team collaborative kind of workplace environment. How does the game change? when you've got a boss or a supervisor or someone who's who's calling the shots. I saw you had a blog post. It's like, set your priorities before your boss does it for you. Can you speak a little bit about these notions? As soon as you start talking about extreme criteria and prioritize, prioritizing and being really thoughtful about what it is, somebody will inevitably say, well, what happens if uh, my boss or my coworkers or my clients or my partners, internal or external, have a different focus? to me. Mm -hmm. And I always want to say, well, I appreciate you asking me that, but don't you already have that problem? The answer, of course, is yes. Talking about essentialism just draws attention to the problem that's already there. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, yes, you do have a problem. That is a problem. That's something worth talking about. So talk about it. So now you have to have a negotiation about it. Now you have to say, what is it you're trying to get done? And what am I trying to get done? And, And let's Let's see where this aligns. Now, if it's your boss or your boss's boss, you can't just say no. That's career limiting, of course. Mm-hmm. So you, with, with them, you, you still need to have the conversation, though. But the conversation might go something like, yes, I'm very happy to do the thing you've asked me to do. That will take away resources from this other initiative that I think might be serving you better. So let's talk about that. Would you like me to do the big thing that we've already talked about? Or do you want me to do this thing that you've just given to me? That seems like a reasonable conversation to have. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, in fact one, one has a fiduciary responsibility to have those conversations, to be able to say, let me see if, there's a, if this is the best way to serve you. I have somebody who's, um, who's doing work for me, and every so often I say to him, oh, listen, could you just help me out with this project? I've got this thing. Oh, yeah, he always says, starts with yes. Yes, I'm happy to do that. But it takes – then he says, but it um, – but do you want me to take the time resources around this this project that we're working on, uh, the, the the big project? Because that's the you know that's what I'd need to do. Every time I'm like snapped out of my reactivity, <laughs> and I say no no no, you just stay focused on the big the, on the prize. Let's not do that little thing. That was just a spontaneous thing for me. That's valuable. It's valuable when somebody pushes back, not their agenda against mine. That's not helpful. Right. That's not more helpful, and that's not essentialism. But it is helpful if they have thought more deeply through what value I'm trying to create more deeply than I have. That's always useful. That's always relevant. That makes great sense. And and indeed, I think sometimes I when I train and coach people, it's almost just encouraging them to to have the courage to just sort of break from a, a prior habit of just always saying, okay, yes, and then feeling the stress as opposed to to find you that courage to have that conversation there. Or we can start in a very a very simple place by saying something like, um, yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. Let me check my calendar and I'll get back to you. There's something that creates even the smallest degree of buffer between the, the request and the answer, what we might call the, the slow no or the slower no or the slower yes even. I mean, it's just saying... Can I just create a little space 
between the request and the commitment. This is a big step towards eventually increasing that, that space and that creative freedom to do the things that we actually think matter most. Oh, that's great. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, the concept of, of the buffer and other, I guess, verbiage or, or scripts that work well in delivering that message that you want your time and then ultimately you've decided no. Well, first of all, let's, let, 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 this, the idea of buffer. So my sense is that a lot of us are driving down the street of our lives an inch behind the car in front of us. Hmm. Uh, that we're, so we're going at whatever speed we're going, but let's say we're going fast and we're an inch behind. It means that when somebody puts on the brakes unexpectedly, we've got, we've got nothing. That is a very stressful way to drive. Yes. There's, there's, there's no ability for us to be flexible. So in the name of agility, uh, oh, I'm going to go fast. See, that's it. I'm agile. I'm going fast. We're actually, we're not agile at all because we've got no buffer with which to, to respond or to adapt to the changing circumstances ahead of us. My children and I sometimes play a game when we're driving where we have to get from point A to point B without the car ever stopping. Ah. It's just kind of a fun game. I don't know how we got into it, but you have to do all sorts of things to do that. But basically what you have to do is create buffer. You have to make – there's got to be a lot of space between you and the person in front of you in case you're going to go through a red light. The only way you never stop is that you, had a, you have a lot you – know, 20 yards, 30 yards of space. Mm-hmm. And so you're going very slowly now, but you're still moving till the red – the light changes and go. And you can do this for a, lot, a long way. That's what we found if you create the buffer. Now, that's the game. What's the practice? The practice is put on your calendar periods – of buffer put on appointments which you don't know how you're going to use that time but it's just there because you know that there will be unexpected things we don't know what they are but we know they're coming so you've got to uh, allow for that in in the schedule i know an executive who puts two hours every day on their calendar of buffer time they just they don't know what it's going to be they just put it there because they don't know if every minute is already spoken for then they're, then they're going to be perpetually stressed and perpetually behind. So buffer is an extremely powerful idea. I mean, it's, it's like the unfair advantage. I actually sort of want to, to, to go even, even, even bigger, broader about this. Let's do it. And to talk about this at, at, at like a societal level. Uh, Tainter is a historian who, one of the great historians, arguably his most famous work is called The Collapse of Complex Societies. And, and this is what, uh, this is what he, he's noticed. So he has studied every, every major societal collapse, and there's a lot of them in history. Of course, there will have been a lot more than he's covered because we only have the ones that collapsed, but did so in a way that we have historical record of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, then he studies them. This is the pattern. I think this is truly fascinating. You've got a society that's very simple at the beginning, and they have certain problems. And the group or the leaders of the group make some decisions to solve that problem, whatever the problem is. When they solve the problem, in almost all circumstances, they increase the complexity of the society in solving the problem. Hmm. I mean, you can see that now. Then they do it again. Here's the next problem. Okay, let's be good problem solvers and let's take that on and we come up with some solution. The solution adds more societal complexity. And so it goes until there is a sort of tipping point where the cost of maintaining the complexity equals the total resources available to the society. 
Oh. And when you reach that point, your society becomes really fragile because if a new big internal or external threat occurs, you can't respond to it anymore. So suppose you have a massive plague internally. Uh, it's not an external threat, it's an internal threat, but you've got no resources to respond to it. You've got no additional financial, emotional resources there. You, maybe even spiritual resources, you've got mm-hmm. none because you're, you're using everything up. You're, you're so, there's no buffer in the system. So that's what kills you. It's not, the, it's not the plague exactly. It's not the threat exactly. It's your inability to respond to it because of the level of complexity that you've committed to previously. Same happens if you have an external threat. Suddenly, you know, you have invaders coming your way. Yes, that is a threat, but that's not what kills you. What kills you is that you have no buffer to respond to it. Now, let's ask that from a really big perspective for a second. How is the Western world doing on this? Well, it's terrifying as, as you lay this out for me. I'm just imagining, uh-oh. Right. It, it, we, we, are in, we have a serious challenge, right? So, so in the whole, basically all of the Western countries are living beyond their means just to man- maintain the level of current complexity. So living with, living with deficits, Mm-hmm. isn't making us better. It's just sort of maintaining our current position. So it means that if you have a massive new threat, where are the resources to do it? Compare this, compare this with Norway as a counter example. When they found North Sea oil, when they had this sudden good luck, they don't just use it all. They could have used all of those resources to build the most amazing whatever, right? To get the best roads, the best everything in the world. They haven't done that. So the United Kingdom found oil at the same time in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. They, they share that oil between uh, Norway and, and, and the UK. The UK used it all, and, uh, and Norway hasn't, actually hasn't used any of it. They have the largest sovereign fund in the world now. It's over a trillion dollars. It's a five million person country with a trillion dollar surplus that they just grows every year. It grows on average in the 10% plus range in the various ways that it's invested, uh, and they're only allowed to use about half of that, that increase per year to improve the country, and they don't even use all of that. That is a pretty powerful like reshaping of how we think about problem solving. Uh, they are not solving all the problems they could solve. That is a powerful impl- implication of Tainter's work, that just because something is a problem and just because you can solve that problem doesn't mean you should. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Tell us, uh, what do you think are some of the suboptimal things professionals are doing all the time that can be stopped, eliminated without really missing them right now? I don't know that I can answer that for individuals. Mm-hmm. Essentialism is a process program, not a content program, meaning I'm not telling people what they should and shouldn't do. But I am saying that if they follow a non-essentialist process, they're going to get non-essentialist results, meaning they're going to feel worn out, burned out. They're going to make only a millimeter progress in a million directions and so on. So what I'm advocating is that they, that they put in a routine, a process that will enable them to get the results that really matter to them. So, for example, I think that people can put on their calendars right now, 90 days from now, a personal quarterly offsite. Mm-hmm. And every 90 days they take, I mean, even if you start with just a couple of hours at first, it's not a whole day. Eventually it becomes a whole day. And you just use that time to reflect on your life, not just living life, but learning from living, looking at the bigger picture, doing really what people already do in executive offsites, but doing it for themselves. 
and they're reviewing and they say, look, what, what, what's really valuable? What do I need to do over the next 90 days? What are two or three things that are just really game changers? If I work on those and get those done, it will really make a difference. And then from that list, you start to remove things. Then you can have – then that's really the personalized criteria you need to be able to evaluate all these other requests that come your way, all these good things that aren't actually helping you get to uh, what you've now identified. So I think this is a really important adjustment we need to make in the, in the culture that we're in because, because there's, without putting space on the calendar, there won't be any space. Right. So you have to put thinking time on there. I was at Twitter recently, one of the, uh, the people there said, uh, uh, said, do you remember what it was like to be bored? <laughs> and that's a, clever, that's a clever question. I mean, a little, a little ironic given the, that they were the ones that did it to us. Right. But nevertheless, whenever somebody now has a moment, they're on their phone. You don't have to think. And the reality is that it's harder, I mean, it's easier to to face your phone than it is to face your life. So we're we're going to tend to check email over thinking about, okay, where am I? Where do I want to be? And how will I get there? Which, you know, those are the core simple questions of of strategic decision-making. Where am I? What's the news in my life? Where do I want to be long-term thinking? And what's the path to, to achieve it? This is what one needs to do at least once, at least one day in every 90 days to make sure we don't get too far off track from the things that really matter most to us. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I got three more for you in five minutes. Let's see what we can do. Answer me this. Some fans were wondering, so essential to, to focus it on the, the key things and to, to say no often, but how do you think about sort of squaring your, your personal vision while serving others, either in order to build a rapport so they return favors or just due to uh, a moral imperative to to serve i did a joint piece i, I don't remember if I, maybe it was a q a but it was a sort of a, a joint article of some kind with adam grant who wrote the book give and take and his whole argument is that there are two kinds of ways of giving one group is the group that becomes most successful and one group is the group that becomes least successful. So that's interesting. Both want to give, but the the way you choose to give will determine which group you're in. Ah. The most successful group is a sort of disciplined givers. Uh, They're thoughtful about it. They're not just saying yes to everyone and everything. That's the bottom group. One of the reasons that I suggested doing this piece together was because I believed it wasn't a contradiction between his approach and give and take and essentialism, Mm. even though they come at questions of decision-making from different uh, different narratives. And how do I become a disciplined giver, a thoughtful giver, yeah. where instead of just doing anything just because somebody is requesting it, and in a, given, a disciplined giver will give even when people aren't asking them to give, but they'll be giving in a very particular way, the way that they feel most uniquely able to make a contribution. Oh, I love it. And and can you tell us uh, where would be the best way to find you, uh, your website or Twitter, if folks want to learn more about you and your book, where would you point them? Uh, I mean, gregmcewan.com is the website. Uh, my Twitter handle is Gregory McEwen. There are updates in both locations uh, that uh, so that you can continue to be part of the conversation in this ongoing adventure to live a life that really matters. Oh, I love it. 
Could you give us a kind of one favorite challenge or, or call to action that you'd issue forth to folks seeking to become more awesome at their jobs? I think that one needs to try to negotiate a single thing that really will move the needle over no more than a year, but up to that level. And to negotiate it until you say, yes, that's the big thing. So that once it's done, once you achieve it, people don't say, man, what has that person been doing? Mm. They go, oh, they killed X. And that X was really valuable. It's very easy for people hoping to be recognized and to move up in their careers, sort of to to move up, to make the the career tent higher Mm -hmm. while they're putting in tent poles of the same length. You know, like... They're not going to go any higher because they just keep doing more and more of the same stuff. Hmm. And what I'm arguing is that you think really deliberately about what what is that thing that will progress the whole thing forward. I think that is a materially important way to be recognized uh, and to be promoted. Oh, that is fantastic and a beautiful visual I'm reflecting on right now. Greg, this has been a real treat. Thanks so much for making the time. And, and I wish you tons of luck as you're disciplined and pursuing the the vital few things that you're pursuing over there. Pete, it is my pleasure. Thank you. I have a feeling there may be some substantial closet clearing out that occurs after this, and it's a good time for that in the summer to give it away to folks in need. So again, if you want to check out the, the show notes, the transcript, those items mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep38. And I hope to catch you next time, episode 39, where we're chatting with Bill Poundstone about why it's still important to know stuff in the age of Google. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 